With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I remember watching uh, this guy for so many years from uh, episodes at the, the uh, when I was a child to a continued episodes. So I'm excited to welcome the program. Donnie Most, we all know him as Ralph Mouth on Happy Days. Donnie, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Thank you, and thanks for having me, Neil. Absolute, Donnie. Tell us the story of basically how you got the role on Happy Days. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, I, I grew up in New York and uh, been pursuing. I started out uh, actually singing before I was acting, and then I started getting into, uh, you know, got the acting bug when I was about, uh, big time when I was about 16, and so I, I was going out on, I was able to get a agent and manager and started getting auditions, and I started doing a lot of TV commercials while I was in high school, and then continuing through college and um, doing theater and college and and then um went out to California after my junior year originally just for the summer um and and I started getting some work pretty quickly and uh so made the decision after the summer uh to at my agent's advice to take 6 months off from school and not go back since I had some okay. momentum and um and you know the season was getting real busy and see what would happen. So I, I stayed out in LA and, and, uh, got some more work. And then I went a period of time with nothing for like months. And I said, Oh, oh I made a bad decision. And, uh, but then, uh, happy days audition came up and, and, and I had several callbacks and then eventually a screen test. And, uh, and that led to me getting, you know, offered, uh, a role that I didn't even, originally I tried out for the role of Potsy, but, uh, they they then decided uh, they they wanted to cast me in a uh, you know they gave the role to Anson but the, the executives liked my screen test and and decided they should make me a regular character as well so there was a small role in the pilot of a guy named Ralph and okay. they said we'll build that role up and uh, he could be a regular so that's how that happened very interesting what would you say was your fondest memory of the years being on Happy Days. You know, people ask me that, and it's it's really hard to single out one single event. But you know, my the the memories that I that I really remember are the camaraderie that we had, and and some of the uh, and and the way we collaborated on 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 the professional side. Uh, some of the sessions that we used to have with the writers, and and after a run through, and we'd be discussing. You know, we'd be getting notes from people, you know, like Gary Marshall and and the writers and our director Jerry Paris, and then all of us working together to try to make uh, to to solve problems, make things better, funnier, and um and and some of the back, you know, sort of the backstage conversations that we all had. Those are the things that I remember the most. Usually, shows last long when they when the cast works together and likes each other. That's usually what happens, and they, and you have talented people around you for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we had a great great group of people, and we did get along incredibly well, and and we had respect for each other for for the work. We we took it seriously. We had a great time, but we worked really hard at it. But yes, you know the fact that we had all got along so well. Um, and having that great chemistry really was a big factor for the show's success. So you started as a musician, Donnie, and then you you went back yeah. to your passion after or kept continued to act. But you, this is your passion, music, isn't it? 
it sounds like it to me. Yeah, yeah, it it, it was interesting. I always knew that at some point um, I would you'd go back to the music. Not that I'd ever want to give up acting and or directing, which I've done, but but that I would go back to the music in in a significant way at some point. And I don't know why it took why I waited quite as long as I did, but I think it had to do with the fact that the music that I loved my whole life um, was you know with with the great songs of the American songbook and mm-hmm. the stand, the jazz standards. And it was hard to do that kind of music um, when I was younger in the 70s and 80s because it was kind of looked upon as old-fashioned during that period. And But now, you know, there's been such a resurgence in the last, I'd say, 15, 20 years um, of, of that music that I knew this was a much better time for, for me to pursue it again. So I think that was a big factor. And, and and I'm loving I'm loving the fact that I can do this music and that there's a you know there's an audience for it and and a growing audience for it and and not only the people from my generation but younger people have discovered this music and really love it so um, that's exciting to me and 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 um, I love exposing it to people who haven't who aren't as familiar with it and of course the people who are that's great. That, to see their enjoyment of it, and, and and I love it so much. So it's 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 a it's a great situation right now. So you think a swing and big bang, uh, big band, and you say to yourself that I see dancing as becoming such a popular genre now of just older styles and different styles. People just love to dance, and so how how give us a describe your CD for us? Uh, launched D most mostly swinging, and explain how yeah. how it works, yeah. how how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, when we decided. Uh, I, I met a guy uh, named Willie Murillo, um originally because um, he was a he's a great trumpet player as well as an arranger and and he played for me in one of my live gigs and then I, I got to know him a little and I started hearing some of the stuff he arranged and and I was really impressed because arrangements are so important to me and um, and I knew this guy was uh, he was written some of the best I'd heard. So we started talking about doing a CD, and then it was like, okay, what songs are we going to do, and and what are the style and the arrangements, and and that became a real labor of love because I see that he had the same kind of sensibilities as me, and we loved that the excitement of a big band sound when 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 it really swings, and and it has the the sort of integrity and essence of the older, you know, of the original uh, songs and some of the big band stuff, but yet with a modern today's kind of voicings, if you will. And so the combination makes it, 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 it has the, well, all the great things about it that it had, but, but with, you know, it's a, a little bit more fresh and, and and more even more exciting than than I think it was back then because of, of the you know evolution of music, so so it's a great sound and people when they hear it they they can't help but want to dance as you talk about I mean it happened when we do it live people at their tables literally get up and just stand around and start dancing because the music is that infectious and and you know and those lyrics of these of these old songs were were uh, so wonderful and unique and, and funny and sophisticated and witty and and at times incredibly oh, wow. poignant, yeah. you know, on some of the great, great ballads. So so people love, you know, it, you can't help, no matter what music you like, you can't help but uh, getting caught up in, in, in the feel of this music. Exactly. Okay, best place we can find information on you to purchase your CD and learn more about you. Where can we go? Yeah, the CDs on Amazon and and uh, iTunes. You can you can download it, um, and uh, and you know people could uh, find out more about what I'm doing on my uh, Facebook page, the music page under Don Most, or Twitter at uh, Most underscore Don, and my website DonnyMost.com. So um, yeah, I encourage people to to check out uh, some of the songs on iTunes. They could you know sample it and. And uh, the most mostly swinging, and it and it the the band swings for sure, and and uh, I think I'm 
right there in the pocket with them. All right. Awesome, Donnie. Thanks for calling. Appreciate you coming on. Take care. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Donnie. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTitterNeilHaley.com. And my guest, uh, people really love this guy. It's It's been such a successful show. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Kevin O'Connor of This Old House and Ask This Old House on PBS. Kevin, thanks for calling, and... Uh, can you believe the success of the show and how many seasons you've been doing this for? It just must be unbelievable. Well, yeah, it's great. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for that. Uh, it is a dream come true. I'm in season 14 or 15, but the show's been going strong since 1979. So I'm still very much the new guy, even after a decade and a half. The guys I work with are awesome. The stuff we do is awesome. And I love, I mean, I love doing it every day. It is very cool to be on this old house. So it must have been awesome when someone, they approached you, right? Because I think you probably were a fan of this before you uh, got the got the gig, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I watched it growing up uh, with my dad and my brothers, like so many other people did. Um, I loved it. And, in fact, when we bought our first house, we actually wrote them a letter. We, I think we wrote the magazine a letter um, looking for some information. You know, we kind of were fixing up this beautiful old home north of Boston, and we kind of got in over our heads. You know, my wife and I were just like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? And the first person we thought about, the first thing that we thought about was, well, you know, this old house will know the answer to this. And I don't even know why we wrote him a letter. Like, we didn't, we had any expectations of answering the letter, but we did because we are just like, ah, oh, that's what these guys do. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they were starting the first season of Ask This Old House, which is a smaller project. The guys ringing doorbells, coming out, okay. fixing up little problems in the houses. So they came out. Uh, they filmed. It was great. I saw Tom Silva, and I was like, dude, you're awesome. He left, took a picture, cracked a beer, and I thought that was it. And two weeks later, three weeks later, they called up, and they're like, hey, you want to be the host of the show? <laughs> and I was like, what? But uh, eventually, I said yes, and there I am, working on it. So that's why it's so popular is people love these tremendous old homes in different communities. You know, the old cookie cutter, let's build a house, you know, put brick on it in a plan that everything looks the same. When you have these unbelievably old houses and then you renovate them, they're tremendous because they have such charm and character to them. That's what I, that's, I think that's what's really the big love of it. I think that's a big part of it. You know, people do love these historic homes, the character, the sort of nostalgia, the sort of stories that come with it, you know, this idea that 10 people before you have owned the place and there's this history with the house. Um, there's a certain level of quality to these things. You know, the ones that have survived generally very well built, that's definitely part of it. But I, I will also say there's a lot of people who live in those subdivisions with the newer houses. Um, I'm one. Watch yeah. Not just for the enjoyment, but they watch because there's tons of things you can learn. You know, we are out there talking about the, the latest, uh, most efficient hot water heaters, HVAC systems, plenty you can learn. Even with new houses, you've got these problems with peeling paint, how to fix plaster, best way to expand or open up a room. So we've got people watching it who aren't in an old house who are just like, oh, my gosh, i got a house. These are big beasts that need to be maintained. Uh, and this old house, ask this old house, can help you do that. It definitely can, and uh, it's uh, it's something that is is fantastic because I am not handy at all, Kevin. And my wife gets on me all the time. Like, for example, our garage door couldn't open yesterday, and we thought it was the garage door opener, and it was really the garage door spring was broken, and we were trying to figure out how to open it up. So. Me not being handy at all, these are the kind of shows I need to say, okay, this is what I need to sit down with my wife and watch because she's interested so that I can learn more about what to do to fix up a home or fix up specifically or make your home more beautiful. That's what you learn on this show for sure. Yeah, and, and if you don't end up doing the work, you know, if you're not going to go out there and fix that garage door opener because the spring is a little bit beyond you, it, you might learn from watching a segment on how to do it. You might learn the questions that you need to ask when the technician comes out with the vocabulary that you need to use. Most right. people don't even know how to explain some of these problems. Uh, it's funny. We get calls all the time, and they're 
were like, you know, my uh, my four rafters are bent, and we're like, you're what? Like, what are you talking? <laughs> like, you mean the joints between? You know, you have to sort of describe it, and that's fine. You know, it's like you wouldn't expect uh, you know, to have a good conversation with the surgeon using his lingo, but you watch these episodes, you watch these things, and people either learn how to do it or they learn enough about it so that they know who to call and what to tell them or what to ask. Uh, you know, when the guy comes and says, "I'll do this or I'll do that," so it's it is informative. We're hopefully teaching people the best way, the right way to fix these things. And hopefully, um, in addition to being informative, it's a little bit entertaining, too. Oh, I'm sure it's entertaining or you wouldn't be on for the 37th season and yourself in the 15th. So uh, continue, continued success. What's exciting about uh, this season, 37th, is going to be Detroit. What made you think of the unique architecture in Detroit and why that is a place to kind of highlight uh, that city? Well, so here's the, here's the amazing thing, and, and one of the reasons why we're in Detroit. Um, at one point, Detroit was one of the wealthiest cities in the country. Right, it also yes. had one of the highest percentages of home ownership. So it is the middle-class utopia. It's huge. So everyone got a, a single-family home. They didn't build these houses at a time when they're building row houses and tenements and brownstones downtown, like old cities like New York and Boston. They built out, and they have these beautiful inventories of single-family homes. Sadly... Over the last 30 or 40 years, a million people have left the city and left behind these houses. So many of them are empty. Tens of thousands of them are empty. But as people come back and as Detroit tries to bring people back, they realize they have to do it through the houses. So we're out there working with a family who's decided to buy one of these houses that had been abandoned for four years, fix it up with them and get them back into it and tell that story of Detroit in the process. A great city that's fallen on hard times but is going through a resurgent and huge opportunity because it has some of the finest housing stock in the country, literally going begging. You can buy one of these places for a thousand bucks if you want to live and work in the city and fix the thing up. It's unbelievable. These houses are spectacular. When people see the one working on, small, modest in size, but just I mean, leaded glass windows with stained glass detail, beautiful hardwood floors, big fireplace, oh, wow. ornate plaster. It's unbelievable. And you're like, this thing's empty? I can buy this for a couple thousand bucks? It's, it's crazy. So that's the story we're telling. And and people having the opportunity to see if they can flip it or just say, hey, this is a property that we can love for sure. And that's the excitement of watching it. And additionally, this old house is currently rolling out its first digital series, Detroit, one house at a time. So what's the difference of the digital series compared to the show that's on the, the on just on, on the network? What's the difference for the digital TV show. The TV show is a lot about the work that we're doing on the house. The house is the star. The digital series, which you can see online at thisoldhouse.com, is about the people who showed up, the people who are living there and helping us to fix the house or who were helping fix the house up. But something amazing happened when we were there. Strangers, complete strangers, started showing up on the property and asking if they could work with us, <laughs> literally yeah. begging if they could work with us because they love this old house, but more importantly because they're local Detroiters who are proud of their town and they want want the story to be told. And so we actually said yes to a lot of these people who volunteered their time and materials and got this house renovated uh, through the kindness of these strangers. And so the digital series is a way to meet those people, to hear their stories, and and to hear from them why they love Detroit and why they think these houses are so worthy of being saved. All right. And best place we can uh, find information on you, Kevin, where can we go? Uh, Thisoldhouse.com has got everything you need to know about us, the television shows, and on social, I'm available at Kevin O'Connor, P-O-H. That's all the stuff, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, (laughs) anywhere. Yes, yes, yes. You you know the lingo when it comes to fixing houses, but maybe social media, not as much, Kevin. So thanks for calling. (laughs) (laughs) And and we'll we'll talk more. Take care. Have a good day. Take care. All right, see you. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTutor, and NeilHaley.com. And uh, this seems like a very, very interesting show. Forget me ever doing this. Even though I was a former professional wrestler, I would never think about doing this. So I'm excited to welcome the program, the host of Kicking and Screaming on Fox, Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, Hannah Simone. Hannah, thanks for calling. How are you? 
of course. I'm doing great. How are you? Fantastic. So when you heard first about this project and you heard about what the contestants have to do, you were pretty much like, are you serious? This just this makes like other reality shows or survivalist shows compared. It's less like, wow. That, that, that's what I see when I read a little bit of information on. That's a real wow, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was shocked because I watch all of those survivalist-type shows, and they are hard enough as it is, just surviving the challenges and surviving the jungle. But I can't imagine being then paired up with your total opposite and having then to survive the game with that person because if that person drops out, you're also out of the game, which is such an additional stress and challenge. Um, it's a really unique uh, twist on the genre. Oh, and, and, and also the, the fact, Hannah, that, 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 you know, you talk about that, but just going into being dropped into a dangerous area like that and, and, and how to survive in, in, in that environment where there's dangerous animals and everything involved in it. What do you see those differences? Because you were a fan, you said, of those other survival shows. What do you think the differences are that our, fan, our, our listeners should expect? The differences, I feel like, lie in the twist of the partnership. It was really interesting because there were several survival shows that were shooting in Fiji when we were there. Um, and I've watched, actually, all of them. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. They've all aired. Um, and it's been fascinating. It's been so fascinating as a huge fan of survivalist shows to actually be able to crawl through my TV and be on set of one. And ours really was unique because we had these survivalists who have such a lone wolf mentality, and they had just prepared to deal with the bugs and the animals and the starvation and then, you know, conserving energy so they can get through really tough challenges. And all of that was useless. Um, when it came to dealing with a partner who just started crying the entire time because their, you know, eyelashes were lifting. They were just had jaws on the floor and didn't know how they were going to get week to week. And they realized that they had to work on their people skills. Like, that's what they really had to sharpen in home. Wow. That, like, yeah, that's for sure. And then hand-holding. <laughs> so it's like, uh, even though I said I was a former professional wrestler, dropping me in with a survivalist where I don't like being outdoors that much and uh, I want to be pampered, and then I'm going to be dealing with this stuff and getting upset and angry because I don't want to be here, and the person that's been professional that's done this in their lo a lot in their life and know how to survive in these areas has to learn to get along with that person just to win this game. That's what it sounds like. It's really, really fascinating because you start to see that the, the novices, people like you and me, because I would have a real tough time too, um, they needed all of a sudden somebody that was gentle and understanding of them. So a lot of these guys have like military backgrounds. They were the survivalists. They're used to just falling in line and doing what they're told and sucking it up. And you can't have that attitude with somebody who has complete power over your money source. Because if they quit, you're also gone. So it really challenged both sides of these contestants to dig really deep if they wanted to stay in the game and win the money. I just I can't imagine uh, uh, dealing with that and and how they have to really teach them. So you're seeing a lot of the people who are kicking and screaming are learning as they go week to week if they survive, right? Yeah, that was the most interesting part because, you know, you don't know when you watch those shows um, that are unscripted how much of it is really real. But I was out there for over a month in the jungles of Fiji with our contestants, and I just watched them all grow. And I watched how the teams that would just find something in common, even if it was just focused on the money. <laughs> um, 
that they can really at least bond over it and come up with a strategy and find a mutual respect with the ones that went furthest in the game and eventually the team that won. And what would you see also in the fact that how they cast the person that wasn't very experienced? What types of backgrounds, especially if our listeners want to catch back up on the show, especially they got to tune in this Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, but kind of understand uh, uh, the, the process of how certain people that are competing with the survivalist, what, what backgrounds they have? Because even the survivalists come from all walks of life. So we have people that are marine snipers or warlords, but we also have, like, a ninja. And, um, you know, we have a couple ladies on the show that are naturalists. We have a guy who lives completely off the grid. You have that spectrum of survivalists. All the way from Millie right down to, you know, barefoot hippies. Um, but they all know how to survive in the elements. They just have different approaches. That's 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 awesome. And, and one thing I, I was th- I was thinking about, Hannah, is what about your experience hosting? Is this an interesting thing for you? I mean, again, you're uh, an actress, you're a model. Was this a, a, a great experience for you to get the opportunity to do something a little different than you normally do? Yeah, of course. I mean, for me. I shoot New Girls for eight, nine months of the year for the past six years, and so I'm here in L.A., but one of my great passions is traveling and adventure, and so when I come home from a long day on set, the thing that I do is, just like everybody else, I turn my TV on and watch my favorite shows, and they're all travel adventure shows, and so for me as a fan to be able to be on set of one of those shows and see how it really goes down 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, there's no break. Right, exactly. I wasn't exactly. You know, going to work Monday to Friday and taking the weekends off. You can't do that. I mean, they're out there living in the jungle, and you can't be like, see you on Monday. <laughs> like, you have to be there every single day, and you're just watching these people kind of break down and rebuild themselves. It's fascinating. And I'm sure also your fans of, of New Girl have been tuning in as well to the show because of how much of a fan they are of you, right? You know, through social media and stuff, how you've been yeah, promoting it. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really cool to kind of watch the crossover because both shows are on at the same time. New Girl's on Tuesdays, Kicking Screamings on Thursdays. In fact, um, tonight is the uh, season finale of New Girl, and it's been really interesting to watch on social media the a level of New Girl fans that are also watching Kicking and Screaming. Because Kicking and Screaming has got such a great approach. It's not a serious um, look at these survivalists and novices in the jungle. There's a lot of humor to it. Because just like anybody, when you are put in a situation where you're a fish out of water, it's funny. Funny things happen. Everybody's struggling. Um and everybody gets a little weird, so they just kind of lean into that, which is great and makes the show so much fun to watch. All right. It's still comedy fans, just like New Girl. Awesome. All right, best place we can find information on you, Hannah. We can follow you on Twitter and different places like that. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Hannah Simone, and my Instagram is full of pictures from when I was in Fiji at The Real Hannah Simone. All right, well, best of luck on tonight and then also Thursday. Everyone needs to tune into both episodes and take care. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Thanks. All right, see you later. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilAHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program from NBC's Grim Bitsy Tolick. Bitsy, thanks for calling you. You know what? Uh, this, hey. is, this has got to be... Uh, a reminiscing time for you, but also a sad time for you. Sixth season finale, Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, and the sixth season ends the uh, grim saga, and uh, it's it's got to be, it's bittersweet for sure. Don't you agree? Yeah, it's really bittersweet. We all, were, we were, the whole cast was ready to just keep doing this until we, we're in wheelchairs and, you know, little walkers. We wanted to stay on the show, but we uh, we were really grateful to NBC for giving us the final 13 episodes. Um, that wasn't necessarily guaranteed, 
And uh, and so, yeah, we hope that the fans are going to like it, although a lot of people were upset about last week. It was a pretty sad episode. Absolutely, and uh, we don't want to spoil things because people catching up for sure, Bitsy, but thinking about specifically enough, uh, just the fans. You guys have such ravenous fans. You go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go anywhere. People just love Grimm, and it must feel so great to be part of a show for six years like that, yeah? Yeah, it does. I, you know, I was I was just doing another radio interview, and they were saying, did you, did you know that the show was going to be a hit? And I said... Yeah, actually, from the beginning, I knew that if NBC had just picked up the pilot, because most pilots don't get picked up. Right, right. And I was like, God, if they just put us on the air and we have some genre fans come to the show because they were fans of Buffy and we had we had, we had the same writers, then I was like, we'll stay on the air. And that's what happened. Um, they've been amazing. Well, you know when a show ends, and you'll see in history, especially a popular show, it's going to be played everywhere, somewhere. Who knows who will pick it up and stream it, and you'll be living forever on on the screen of Grimm. So remember that, especially if there's fans, there's always going to be reruns, and there's always going to be uh, continued. It's funny, I talked to some of these celebrities, and they have shows still playing today, and it was 20 years ago they were on the show. So that, that's the great thing about being part of a I show. Hope that, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah. 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 I really hope so. Um, it's a great show. I'm so proud to have been a part of it. And, uh, you know, it's always done really well internationally. I think it's one of those shows that doesn't get lost in translation. You know, it's something that, uh, you know, everybody understands the format of a fairy tale and you have a young protagonist overcoming all odds. And I think that's part of the reason it was such a hit because uh, in some regards it was even more successful internationally than it was in the States. Um, so I hope that people continue to watch it who maybe haven't seen the show yet. And never give up. You might be getting a call by somebody else, especially if the fans keep speaking out as you see how other shows make their runs back after a run is over. So uh, just preview what, yeah. what to expect the last yeah, episode. Yeah, go ahead, Bitsy. I'm sorry. Oh God, bring tissues. Um, I do. I I will say I think it's a happy ending. Um, so just hang in there. But it's they're gonna make you work for it. <laughs> Absolutely, and you're trying to uncover things, right, Bitsy? Just that's the, the 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 part of this episode without giving anything away is you're just trying to find out answers from what happened last week. Correct. Exactly, um, and she who's safe at this point because clearly the fact that this guy is your store who's like kind of the, the big evil villain uh, was able to, I won't say the names, was, was able to, to kill a couple of our main characters. He's uh, an incredible threat to the rest of the gang as well. Now, because I have you on for a couple minutes, Bitsy, I wanted you to talk about what was your one of your fondest memories of being on Grimm? You know, it could it it, it uh, working with certain casts. What would you what would you like to share? Well, I mean, I'm about to marry David, so we always say that Grim uh, was really life changing for us, in particular because we we sort of fell in love while we were working together. Um, so that I'll always remember, and. We we'll always really appreciate Glenn for bringing us together. Um, but fond memories. Um, we, we like to play play a lot of pranks on each other. Um, this cast just has a lot of fun together. We have vacation together. We all go to Montana together once a year. It's atypical for an entire cast to be this close. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're on location. We were all almost pretty much, you know, Give or take 10 years, everyone was around the same age. So we all like to do the same things, and we all got along so well. So it's really just about being on set with friends, and the crew also became like family to us. You know, when you're on a show for this long, you can't help but get really close to the people that you work with. It's almost like graduating from college or high school. Now all you guys will go your separate ways, but we'll stay in touch, right? And especially in other gigs and other things you'll be doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were we were last week um, all at 
our executive producer, South having a party, most of us. Russell is, he plays Hank on the show. He's already in New York shooting a Netflix series. And my fiance, David, he's in New Mexico um, shooting a pilot for CBS. Um, but everybody else is already there. Like, it's as if the show never ended. Well, again, uh, meeting somebody that that you fell in love with, what a what a great opportunity! You never always get these opportunities and gigs. And uh, I looked at your background, especially Harvard and all this. It's such an interesting thing. What's next for you? I, I, it's really sad to say, okay, it's over. But what, what should our fans expect from you? What are you? Uh, or do you have any other new projects you're looking into? Probably pilots or different things that you can say right now, Bitsy, for where, where I, yeah. Yeah, right now we're just focusing on, we, we've always decided we wanted to wait until the show was over to get married because um, it's just too much planning and too much stress. So uh, our marriage is coming up, you know, relatively soon, and so we're kind of focused on that. And then uh, we also need to logistically move back to L.A. from Portland for auditions and meetings and stuff. So we have a move and the wedding coming up, and then... Um, yeah, I have a movie called We Love You, Sally Carmichael, coming out. It's an indie comedy that I did with Sebastian Roche and Chris Gorham, and, and we'll see. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll our, our paths will cross again, uh, for sure, Bitsy, uh, with another show or another opportunity. Best of luck. Best place we can find information on you. I know everyone that's uh, going to tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern Friday night uh, to Grimm, but where can we find information on you? Are you on Twitter and stuff that people can check you out? I am um, Bixie Tullock on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I do love interacting with the fans, so come say hi to me. Well, I'll be blowing up your Twitter with all the syndication of the show going out uh, throughout, throughout tomorrow and all the promotion and all that stuff, so be ready for your Twitter to be blowing up oh, and all your fans you. and all that stuff. That's what we do promotion-wise. Well, I appreciate you calling, and uh, thanks for getting up this morning to awesome. chat with me, Thank and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks again for calling. Thanks so much. Take care. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Bye. Haley Show. Bye-bye. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And my guest, this is just great. Like, last week we were able to interview something was my passion as well. It was a surprise on Friday, and uh, this continues. So I'm excited to welcome the, uh, the program. Uh, Jill Jones, she's the producer of Spectrum, a story of the mind premiering on PBS. And in regard, it, it involves autism and everything. Jill, thanks for calling, and how are you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Neil. I'm excited to talk to chat with you. Absolutely, Jill. Let's kind of just jump into your background. You you've produced many different things, so this, and then I want to understand why you chose to be involved in this project. But first, a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I went to Emerson College in Boston to study media production, graduated in 2009, um, and moved out to L.A. and uh, have been working in TV um, ever since um, and producing projects uh, with my partner, Brent Yance. Um, Our company is called Nanook Original, and uh, Spectrum is really a passion project that is um, based on my cousin, uh, Grant, who is on the autism spectrum. So we uh, have wanted to do a project on this subject matter for a long time. And when we came across kind of the right angle, I actually, when I first moved out to LA, it was, um, you know, right after the economy crashed and had a hard time finding a job, I ended up working at a nonprofit uh, for people with disabilities in Pasadena, Villa Esperanza Services. And uh, through that job, worked with a number of people on the autism spectrum, and they sent me to a conference with Temple Grandin. Oh, my. Yeah. And, yeah. And at that conference, I had a huge kind of wake-up call understanding sensory issues uh, when she was explaining how she perceives light and sound and touch and all that stuff. And it really informed how I went back and worked with the clients at the nonprofit. And I felt like, you know what, I don't think that this is something that people get. I think we have a lot of stereotypes about autism. Yes. 
Um, but making a documentary and trying to, you know, actually interview autistic people and hear their perspective um, could be a way of helping people understand, you know, their family, the people they're working with, uh, and even giving autistic people a chance to see other people represented. Because Temple Grandin is really famous, and we did interview her, but then we went out and interviewed people who uh, are not as well-known. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the background of the project and how so, we got started. I have a thousand questions because, I mean, thinking about specifically enough, when we look at autism, some people have just a specific label, Jill. They think of a, yes. sometimes just nonverbal, uh, un- you know, um, just uh, you know, low IQ, you know, or or just or or right. or, or this uh, or Rain Man type of thing. So the issue yes. the issue is that people have to understand that the autism spectrum is such a wide variety of individuals of that have differing thoughts, things, you can't just pigeonhole one of them and say, okay, that's, that's someone with autism. That was one of the reasons for this. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, getting more, we talk a lot about, um, you know, representation in TV and movies and, you know, getting more diversity seen so that people can see, which helps, you know, take down stereotypes and I think that people, uh, we don't really think about it, but people with disabilities actually do fall into, uh, when you think about diverse people um, that need representation. Um, so whether it be seeing someone in a movie that is using a wheelchair or uh, seeing someone, yes. you know, a woman with autism, which isn't something that we typically see, um, it's, it is really important to get those many, many examples, because I think there's a famous thing. If you know one person with autism, you know, one person with autism. That's, yeah. um, and I think that's, that's very true. You know, the, the film was inspired by uh, my, my relationship with my cousin, but it doesn't mean that it's a representation of exactly how he sees the world. You know, it's, it's a representation of just the people in the film and that's it. And and that's 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 the the thing that we need to to bring out. And, and what you were, I've been reading like I read the press release and stuff that there are people that are fearful of people with autism. Is, do you think it's based on one case that somebody possibly had autism that did something severely scary, or or just looking at it? That that's the other part of this is when we look at adults and children with disabilities a lot of people shy away from them because they just think they're specifically one source was there something in your research before going out and doing this documentary uh that led you to understand that there's some people that are fearful of this population or scared not scared but yeah 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 i think that we're scared of things that we don't understand um whether it be we're scared to talk to someone that we don't feel comfortable with. Um, And, you know, going back to fear of those on the spectrum, um, I think it's also kind of a stereotype that autistic people don't have empathy. Um, It's kind of like even people train uh, and in the history of autism therapy, it has been kind of this concept that, People on the spectrum cannot imagine how you feel, um, and right, right. actually, that was something that it's not true. I, I I didn't really think about. Um, but Nick Walker, who is in the documentary, he's a martial artist and he's a, a neurodiversity advocate and he's a scholar. He really helped me uh, understand the concept that it's not that people on the spectrum don't have empathy it's that it's not the form of empathy that we expect to see so like we think of empathy as like making eye contact because if you make eye contact with me that means you're showing that you understand right and if someone on the spectrum 
does not like to make eye contact because it's too much information or it's a lot to coordinate, you know, looking at someone while listening to exactly. someone, that's just yeah. too much to process. So they might be looking off to the side, which, and you know, I would say neurotypical, like a typical person would look at them and think, oh, they don't care, or they're not there, or they're in their own world, or, you know, any number of things that, that they don't connect or care. Um, and Nick really helped me understand that that's not true. It's just empathy taken in a very different form. Yes. And that's the first thing you talk about is eye contact. We don't trust people if they don't make eye contact. And when you see somebody that does not make eye contact, you think, well, they just really don't care who I am. They don't care about the situation. And I love when you brought up the fact that they do. They do care about others. They do have feelings. And that's the other point. Jill, they have feelings. They Just because they react differently than other people uh, on this earth does not mean they don't care and cannot feel hurt and discouraged and angry and depressed or happy and and have adulation. Yes. Yes. That, that That's the missing component, I think, that people say, well, they're not paying attention to me. They're in their own world. You know that, that quote. Right. That quote is there all the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 100%, 1,000%, you know, fully human. But, you know, if you are taking in the world in a different way, like if you can imagine what it would be like to sit in a classroom and there's fluorescent lights and they're flickering, you perceive them flickering um, because you are on the spectrum. You might, that might change your behavior. You know, you might be putting your head down. You might want to leave the room. You, it might even like make you feel irritated, in which case you might look angry, you know? So I think a lot of times we're reading behavior and we think that if we see behavior, we understand the person whether you know we're seeing eye contact or we're seeing someone who's rocking back and forth. And if we don't understand the behavior, we don't understand the person. And I think the, the goal of this project was really to try and understand sensory processing so that you can then understand uh, why someone may appear different on the outside because they might be seeing the world differently on the inside. And I think actually very valuable to see the world differently um right there's you know that's that is not a a deficit which i think a lot of times we think about autism as a set of deficits and we want to like try and look at it as a set of differences does that make sense you're seeing the presence of something else versus just just looking at someone and thinking that something is missing and see and, and that's 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 a, uh, definitely true. Uh, the sensory portion has not been addressed always. We've talked about symptoms. We haven't talked about how to address those symptoms. Oh, they don't like social uh, a lot of negatives. So, Joel, you're trying to put into the process that guess what? They they process things. They have different sensory than we do, but there are a lot like us except those sensory situations. So give us an example of what we'll see on, on the documentary involving sensory, what types of sensory sure. things. Are, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, so the film starts out uh, with Temple Grandin and you may know her uh, from the HBO film Temple Grandin. She's probably the most famous, autistic woman in the world. Absolutely. Um, and she mm-hmm. kind of gives, gives this breakdown over the course of the introduction of the film of both her sensory issues, which when she was a kid, um, she was very sensitive to touch. So she, she said when, it, when someone hugged her, it felt like a tidal wave of simulation. And so we kind of used animation throughout the entire, it's a combination of live action and animation, but to depict um, literally her, her hugging her mom. And then it just kind of seamlessly transitions into her floating in this giant tidal wave. Um, and then she goes on to explain other types of sensory issues, you know, that 
you might be super sensitive to sound. So rain on the roof might sound like bullets. And so we see like a little kid who's running from the rain. Oh my, wow. That's very common, whether it be a kid could get freaked out by a fire alarm. Um, When I was working at that nonprofit, I had a client who didn't want to eat lunch with everyone else. Um, And it was a problem because we had limited staff. So it was like, well, you have to be in the room to eat lunch with everyone else. Otherwise, you're considered unsupervised, and that's a problem if someone from an agency comes in and then they think we're not taking care of you. But the lunchroom was so loud. It was, I mean, it was just complete chaos, 80 people all eating lunch at the same time. So it wasn't just, oh, this guy is being defiant. He doesn't. He's just, I don't want to do that just to make your life difficult type thing. It's more understanding like, okay, it might be over overwhelming. Um, so yes. it really is like just uh, empathy exercise. And I, the goal of the film really is to, um, well, we're excited about it being on PBS and getting a wide audience. Um, but I would love for teachers to see it. Yes. Um, for them to use it in staff training at schools and nonprofits as, you know, this isn't going to fix any major, like, we're not building physical wheelchair ramps or, but just this one thought of understanding sensory issues can impact the entire way you look at someone and their behavior uh, with, you know, heightened sensitivity. Um, the eye contact thing we used uh, and Judy Endo, she has a section in the film. She's a painter. Um, and so we did, like, stop-motion animation, which was really cool, um, with an animator, Richard O'Connor, um, and his company, Ace and Son. And we we took her painting. So she drew a painting of an eye that's just very daunting, and it's literally, like, shedding rays of light onto this little girl like it's just this terrifying big eye <laughs> and we we took that and Richard and his team they anim- they used painted like paint on glass to animate oh, frame by frame wow. this eye like growing bigger and that's you know just it's interesting to hear reactions to the film but that's always been one thing that people are like oh just that little thing exactly. and what's interesting is that yeah. um, so much of training, like even ABA and all the federally funded therapies are based on behavior change. So getting someone to look at you in the eye if they weren't looking at you in the eye versus understanding the internal sensory experience. Um, So that's, you know, that's problematic, but I'm hopeful that if we get more stories out there, then the the therapies and stuff will become more accommodating and more understanding to especially in, what that actually feels like. Especially when they get so frustrated at a younger age and they might be nonverbal and they're hitting their head and they're bashing it and, and damaging their brains just so we get them to do something. And that's yeah. so looking at, as you talked about, uh, eye contact versus noise versus uh uh, you know, certain clothing they wear to one that I don't know if you put this under sensory, but how they think in pictures, would you call that sensory? Was that discussed at all in the film that how some autistic children and adults view everything in a picture format? I guess that sensory would be seeing something the way they see how yeah. we, we see words. We are able to any word we're able to come up with a picture, but they yeah. have to come up with a picture yeah. at all times, Jill, everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's all tied together. You, like you can't separate sensory issues from emotions or brain processing or anything. I mean, it's, it's all linked. Um, but we did explore, uh, synesthesia, which is like this concept that you might one sense kind of feeds into another. So you might be able to literally smell sounds or hear an, a vis- uh, something that you're looking at, um, or, feel emotions uh, with with a sense of touch, which I think 
you know, they, they really don't understand very much about the neuroscience behind this, which is why it makes it really hard to develop any sort of therapy or evidence-based way of, of coping with it. You're really relying on people to just describe their experiences, which the thinking and pictures thing is something that Temple Grandin made famous and made people understand. And it's like, wow, you know, I don't think I'm in pictures like that. So if, if no one had ever told me that, there's just no way I could have possibly imagined that that's a way to, to process the world. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. And then we talk too fast. They don't understand because they're thinking everything in pictures and that's where you have to identify each individual uh, adult or child with autism and say, okay, let me, understand the spectrum, but then I can't just take understanding the spectrum and think that I'm going to be able to help that adult or child. I need to understand that they're an individual. And I think that's another thing by who you, who else you are uh, talking about in this documentary. Give us uh, some of the other people you're going, you started with Temple Grand and you spoke about the other, some other people that are, can be covered. So did you have a wide variety of adults or, yeah, or children? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, with we autism? yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we start with Temple Grandin. Um, and then we actually, we wanted to feature like men and women, kids and adults, you know, people from different diverse backgrounds. So you would, you know, the film is about sensory issues. But so we could literally see like, a spectrum of people across the spectrum, if that makes sense. Um, so we went out and we uh, did a segment on these kids at Big Fun Gymnastics, um, which is a, it's sort of an occupational therapy um, service in Orange County. Of this guy named Gene Herwin, he runs it, um, and he does gymnastics with kids on the spectrum. And the reason that I was so curious to do this is that my cousin Grant, um, growing up, he just loved to jump on the trampoline. Yes. And like for for hours, it was there. Like I could tell it was like his joy place. You know, we'd be sitting inside and all chatting and he'd be out there just kind of flapping and jumping and flapping and jumping. And so I kind of thought, okay, that's something sensory about how he's taking in space and movement. And so, you know, what is that? How can I understand that and make that kind of part of the film? Um, And so we went, filmed these kids doing gymnastics and did interviews with all of them and their parents, um, which gives kind of an interesting, um, you know, kids can't be perfectly articulate about how they see the world. And I think it is actually really difficult even for adults to articulate that because you only know the Exa- way you perceive Exactly, the world. yes, yes. It's like, it's almost like Judy, uh, the painter, uh, is an adult, and she told me that she didn't realize that other people, like when she, her perceptions sort of shift right in front of her. Like literally imagine being on LSD and like seeing like yes. colors changing. But she didn't know until she was 35 or so that most people, their brains process the world so sort of seamlessly that if you see a couch and you're, it's brown, it's, it's going to be consistently like that. Like your brain is able to make it consistently brown and stable and not shifting, whereas her brain is processing, you know, who knows, different dimensions and perspectives around it and different colors in her environment. And it's just coming up with a different final image in her, um, in her mind. So these kids that we interviewed, you know, sometimes they may not be able to articulate like, Oh yes, I'm very overwhelmed by the sign, the sound of a vacuum cleaner. Um, But their parents were helpful. And I think it is helpful just to see, like you can see their sensory processing just by watching their behavior, just by watching them, you know, sit with their parents and how they're holding their parents' hair or um, yes. or kind of fidgeting. 
Um, and and the Gene Herwin kind of helped me understand how movement can help. Uh, it, I mean, it, it is actually a useful tool for managing sensory overload. So that's what my cousin was doing when he was like jumping trampoline is he was regulating his body, which we all do, you know, like if you're sitting at a table and you're maybe had a little too much caffeine or something, start tapping your foot. Like that's a behavior and you're regulating your, your body so that you can kind of feel normal, if that makes sense. Um, so we did some interviews with the kids and the, um, and then we featured a poet, um, Tito Makapadahe that I mentioned that he is super interesting because he is non-speaking, um, but he uses like a keyboard to communicate. Um, and so he resembles my cousin in many oh, ways, wow. um, mm -hmm. from the out, from the outside. And yet, um, he, and it takes him a, quite, quite a while to answer, to answer. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.